Portland students are settled back into classes, but there's still a lot of political dust flying around the wake of the district's first ever teacher strike. And even if you don't have kids in the Portland Public School District, this strike was noteworthy. It's influencing how other union negotiations in the area play out, and it's also leading to larger legislative level conversations about how our state funds public schools. On top of all that, it was also just kind of messy and dramatic in a way that made us eager for a post-game style analysis from someone on the front lines. So today on CityCast Portland, OPB's K-12 education reporter Natalie Pate is here to share what all the major stakeholders are saying in the strike's aftermath and what it means for the future of Portland's public schools. It's Thursday, December 7th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. This teacher strike was so big, it caught the attention of people outside of our area. Like, did you see uh, that even Bernie Sanders people made a video about it? I had not seen that. No. (laughs) They did. You know, they were aligning themselves with the union and the teachers. And I was like, Mm. oh, my God, like the fact that they found an opportunity to make a platform out of it. I was just like, wow, people are really talking about this. Immediately, like, do you think that the Portland public school teachers are better off having gone through this massive strike than simply just taking uh, the deal that the district floated back in October before the strike Mm. started? What do you think? Well, in in some ways, yes. Um, You know, teachers will be paid more over the next three years as a result of this contract, but they also didn't get anywhere close to what they originally wanted. Um, Mm -hmm. And for for context, the the district at the start of the strike was floating something around 11%, and the union was wanting more than twice that. They ended at about 14.4% compounded over three years. So it is in the middle, but closer to the district's original offer. The contract does include a lot, you know, it has more overage pay when they have larger class sizes. Uh, it creates class size committees to address things at individual schools. They've now earmarked $20 million to uh, to go toward building repairs, temperature control, uh, reviewing pest management. Uh, there's more resources for special education. Pest management. So I'm hearing the rats are gone. Yeah. <laughs> the, rats are, the rats are on the way out. Okay, that's great. That was, yeah, that was a very visceral, like, point of the strike. And I think one one thing that I do think is important to note is we obtained some of the pest complaint logs to the district. And for the month of September, there had been 19 rodent-related complaints across all 80-plus campuses. So take, oh take that information as you will. I think some people will be like, why are there rodents at all? Some people will also be like, a lot of these buildings are old and are getting updated and rats and mice exist. Like, so I think take that information as you will, but Mm -hmm. they are reviewing their pest management system as part of this contract. Um, And just to add a few more things, they are getting extra pay for bilingual staff. They've got more resources for special education. There's more mental health support for students. And they've made some changes to the discipline uh, process that that prior to this contract was really seen as disproportionately impacting students of color. So there are a lot of things in this contract that are are considered big wins by the teachers. That's awesome. Yeah. But before we jump into, because I want to ask about the students specifically, I want you to know, Natalie, that the rats did make it to Bernie Sanders' video. Like that was a there you go. There you go. I, I just, feel like just, it rings a vague bell. I just, I don't, I don't remember that. But I will say that during the strike, all the reporters were just like constantly trying to stay on top of everything. And I'm sure we missed plenty. No, I'll send you the video. 
it was cool because it, it, it made, you know, what they're doing feel even more important. But mm. I, I I did laugh at the fact that I'm like, this is what they're highlighting. They're just like, you know, you know, the rats. Like, <laughs> so that does, There was one of the um, slogans was like, it was, I'm going to mess it up on memory, but it was like a uh, hot, cold rats mold this stuff is getting old or, you know, something like that. Um, and I mean, I do like, yeah, no one, no one wants rodents in the classroom who aren't class pets, you know, like there's, yeah. there, there's a different, there's a perception of that that feels very visceral, very um, unsettling. So what about the students? Are they better off? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, these contracts are meant in general to give us a firm, understood condition, for, for the school workers, right? In this case, uh, the people who are, are members of the Portland Association of Teachers. And those people include, you know, teachers, coaches, counselors, like includes uh, includes all licensed staff, right? Substitutes, et cetera. So this contract does like have a direct impact on how schools are run day to day. And I think a lot of people understood that about the strike and understood that um, they were arguing for the points that they were arguing because they care about the students. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone at the table doesn't. Um, but I do think that there are some, some you know, clear things that came out of the contract, like the um, they're, they're tripling the response team for mental health supports. That for students will be a direct impact to them. There will be three times as many staff members available to help with this. And I think that mm -hmm. is substantial. So it seems like the teachers and the students are better off but it also kind of seems like everyone's a little mad. Like, what, what do people say about a good compromise? Like, everyone has to leave a little unhappy. Could you mm -hmm. walk us through what's being said? Like, let's start with the teachers and the union. Like, what's their post-game analysis? Yeah. Well, so I do think it's important to keep in mind that there's there's union leadership, there's union members, there's individual teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just like any major group, you're going to have a variety, a spectrum of opinions throughout. So I do, you know, I give that caveat. Um, but the union and the school board overwhelmingly approved the contract. PAT ratified the contract with nearly 95% approval, and the school board passed it unanimously. So from that perspective, both sides are on board, right? Okay. And a lot of the initial pushback uh, that we saw right after the deal was reached that came at least from students, parents, community members, was really more around the return to school plan. Um, and the biggest concern was making the first week of winter break a school week. There have been some individuals who I've heard from who are upset about um, a couple specifics within the contract. Some felt like the cost of living increase was nowhere close to where they expected it to land or wanted it to land. Um, they're glad that it's higher. And it does seem to be in keeping with some comparable districts, but like that, that's one of the more, you know, notable complaints. Um, but I think the biggest one that I've heard from is around the class sizes. I think a lot of students and PAT members felt the strike was appropriate and needed because they wanted those hard caps on class sizes that the union was pushing for. That right. would have set a very firm limit on when people, you know, if a teacher had reached their max amount, instead of paying the teacher more for more students, which the district already did and now is increasing, they would have put that student in a different class or maybe even a different school under those really firm, hard class size caps. And the district was like, that's a non-starter. It's, it's prohibitively expensive. It's logistically challenging. 
saying it's not going to happen. And it took Mm -hmm. us a really long time during the strike negotiations to get to a point that the union said, "Okay, fine, we're not going to push for that anymore. We're going to switch to higher overage bonuses and we're going to pursue these class size committees. And I think a lot of people were pretty upset that the hard caps got dropped. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'd say to this point is that uh, the school board member, Andrew Scott, said something that I think kind of stuck with me. He described the contract as one that had wins and losses, which we expected. And he said that the, he described the union's initial proposal as one that was more of a transformational contract. And I think that was kind of a note throughout it that a lot of people were saying, you know, this contract is aiming to address decades of underfunding, understaffing. Right. You know, it was seeking to address things that a typical three-year contract won't do on its own. And in the end, he said that he feels like they ended up with a contract that could have been reached without a strike. Um, and that that really mm-hmm. stuck with me. I also heard that a longtime chair of the Portland Associations of Teachers bargaining team told his colleagues this week that uh, he had resigned from his post. And he cited concerns about the, the process, the negotiation process. Mm-hmm. Was it that discordant? Like, did it really just leave that bad of a taste in certain people's mouths? I think so. I think so. Um, You know, on social media, in public events, I think the community could see a lot of a lot of tension, a lot of, um, you know, harsh behavior, um, harassment. And and some people had pointed out um, attacks on women and people of color in the union, attacks on people of color who are leaders within the district. I I do think that it was difficult. Um, I think one thing that's important to remember is that, one, when a group has reached the point of a strike, they truly deeply feel that there was no other option, that they had exhausted every step to that point, right? That's Mm -hmm. theoretically why we got to a strike by definition. And then usually what happens when there's a strike and there's continued bargaining through that is we still have a agreed baseline between the two parties of what is financially possible. And what's being debated isn't what's financially possible. It's how are we going to use that money and how are we going to structure the contract, the other rules of the contract. In Portland's case, it took two weeks or so of debate from the start of the strike just to get on the same page about the money. We had Governor Kotek brought in the state's chief uh, financial officer to get the two on the same page. Uh, Officials from the Oregon Department of Education poured over uh, budget documents as well. There were marathon conversations around this. And we still ended up with a contract that's $175 million. The district is estimating $130 million in cuts over the next three years to make this contract possible. So I think when people felt, you know, there, there was also the back and forth with like media blackouts at the end. So parents and community members felt very out of the loop. They didn't feel like they were getting updates or the updates they were getting. They didn't like how they were being presented to them. Like, right. It, It got very, very tense. Yeah. Okay, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we return, how the district and Board of Education held up during the strike. So, you know, from from your experience of covering this strike day in and day out, like how do you think the big players did, you know, navigating the strike, like the superintendent, Guadalupe Guerrero, or the head of the board? Like how Mm. do you do you think that they handled it well, you know, like could have things gone better? I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, well, what, I, what I'll say as, as a reporter, it was really hard at times to get concrete updated information 
from the district or the union. Um, And the main reason wasn't because they weren't responding necessarily. Like sometimes that was the case. It was hard to reach them during bargaining, things like that. But they also just regularly disagreed on basic facts. And that was very frustrating. And again, kind of goes back to that, like, if we all had a foundational understanding of where we started, I think it could have been a very different process. Um, the, the media blackout at the end that I mentioned earlier made it really hard for us to get information. It made it hard for families to get information and everyone was freaking out going into the Thanksgiving holiday. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, I think those things were, were particular rough spots. I think if you ask the union leaders and strike supporters how they felt about how the district handled it, they felt like the district kept going back on its word. They kept moving the goalpost, uh, refused to meet with them in the middle, Both sides argue that the other wasn't bargaining in good faith. Uh, There were threats of unfair labor practice complaints on both sides, too. But I also think, you know, from the from the district and board's perspective, it was a very tense, very complicated situation. They were dealing with a side that that for a while wasn't acknowledging their what they argued were their financial constraints. You did have community members targeting um, Guadalupe and other district administrators, as well as individual school board members uh, online at their homes, uh, on their personal cell phones with vandalism. And I will I do want to note that the union has repeatedly said that they condemn the vandalism and that that was separate from them. But but those things were all happening. Um, Jeez. So I I I definitely don't envy being in that position. I will Mm -hmm. say that. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the district, like their big proclamation basically was just like, hey, man, we just can't afford it. Like, it wasn't Mm -hmm. like, we want to give you everything. We just can't afford it. Like, they repeatedly said that they need a new source of funding. And school board member Andrew Scott went on the record and he said, you know, we we cannot afford it because the governor and legislature have failed to adequately fund education in Oregon, full stop. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was really interesting because Governor Kotek came in a few times, like you said, during negotiations, making some broad statements urging for the strike to be resolved. But, you know, she really couldn't do much. And last week she announced she plans to spearhead a statewide conversation over how to address the number of systemic challenges plaguing the state's public school system. And to me, it just seems like a lot of talk and deflection when the very basic underlying issues seem to have already been pointed out. You know, it's just a lack of funding. Like, what do you think? Like, is it that simple? Like, what would more funds prevent more strikes? Or is it something that really does need like a, a whole conversation tour as, as Governor Kotek is suggesting? Right. Um, I mean, I'd say it's probably a yes and situation, right? Like, there, these contracts cost money to to pay people, um, to to pay for new HVAC systems, and to bring on more staff that helps with planning time and and costs of living increases, right? Like all those things do take money. All districts need it, and we know that with inflation and with the learning impact since COVID that there's higher student needs, both academically and also socially, emotionally, right? right? So we know the need is extra high. We know that it's hard to retain staff. We want people to stay in education. So there's all these reasons why mo- more money should be invested. So I, do, I don't think that's out of question to be asked. Um, and as you said, the governor, you know, she paid a lot of close attention to this. Um, and one of the specific things, so I, I agree that some of the the solutions she's proposing right now seem much more kind of statewide conversations about addressing mm-hmm. uh, those concerns. Um, and, and those things, I think, we'll see less 
impact day to day for a while. However, one of the things that she has um, that she is considering is a minimum statewide teacher salary. And I think that would be interesting. And so for context, the average teacher salary in the Portland School District uh, right now is in the mid 80,000s. The contract will slightly change that over over time. Um, and the starting salary is closer to 50,000. So if there was a statewide minimum, that would that would be really interesting. That would be a pretty big game changer. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are other things that I think that the, the strike is going to kind of be at the center of conversation for things at the state legislature when they're talking about the quality education model, which to Andrew Scott's point, they have the state has never funded to the level that its own QEM says we need to in order to provide the, the level of quality education that we want to provide in Oregon. What is QEM? Yeah, so that's the quality education model. It's basically the state's analysis to, that's this is oversimplifying it, but it's the state's analysis to say, we want schools to be at this, you know, this point, uh-huh. we are down here, how do we get from here to there? And it gives every biennium, it gives a suggestion of this is how much we need to spend to either keep things as they are versus how much we need to spend to improve them. And Oregon has never, ever, ever, ever (laughs) funded to the level that it has suggested. And so that is one that educators and advocates and lawmakers alike have pointed to. So frustrating. Yeah. And I mean, so, I mean, leads us back to what I was asking, like, more research, more conversations, you know, what mm-hmm. you said, that sounds awesome. Like, I hope that there is a minimum um, rather than, you know, teachers like hoping and praying that eventually they make it to the top tier of pay level, you know. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, it just seems like we just need more money, like immediately <laughs> and less talk about what could be or how how good a school could be or what it takes. Mm-hmm. It seems like there there's actual already research and, and stuff written down. If there's a QEM, I mean, geez, just fund it at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. And there was, you know, the historic funding from the Student Success Act um, in Oregon a few years back, but it happened just before COVID. And that changed things dramatically, how the money was, you know, allocated and sent out and how we used it and the needs of the students. Like there have been some historic investments in K through 12 education in Oregon. There's no denying that. And you know, I have heard from from lawmakers, especially, but from educators, every you know, as well, that yes, we need money. We also do need that second part of it. Is like we do need to improve our systems. We do need to talk about how we can support students better and run schools better. Aside from just the monetary, like we can't just throw money at the problem necessarily. But all the things that we need to do to improve schools also cost money. So it's it's a yes and situation. <laughs> right, right. So like what power does the governor actually have in all this then? I'm not sure. I do think that having the governor say that this is a priority, this is a focal point, these are steps that I want um, us to take, the transparency uh, effort she's pushing for with the Department of Education to make budget information more easily accessible can be then used by state lawmakers and educators to make some of those decisions. So I don't think it's, I I don't think it's nothing. I just think Mm -hmm. that it's you know, we are also going to have state legislatures having this conversation when we're going into the funding for the next biennium. That's going to dramatically influence things. Right. Um, so there's I think there's going to be a handful of, of touch points where it comes up. Yeah. You know, I, I heard other districts are still negotiating. Do you think all that's transpired is going to directly influence the outcome of those negotiations? Like, are you already seeing that or? Yeah. No, I think Portland, the Portland strike, I think is going to be really interesting because with 
Evergreen and Camus's strike at the start of the school year. Now, those were in Washington, which has a slightly different funding structure and all of those caveats. But Portland was watching those. And they, you know, leaders of uh, the association did tell me that they their spirits were kind of buoyed by seeing these mm-hmm. other districts use a strike to move the needle. They found some direct results of that strike. And that was encouraging that, you know, emboldened PAT going into the strike. That said, I've been talking with some other districts who are in uh, continued uh, negotiations. And I've said, you know, are you watching Portland? Like, how is that going to influence your decision? I think it's going to depend on individual districts and where they are. I know last I heard Ben Lapine is seeming to make some positive progress in their um, negotiations. So there seems to be some hope that a strike can be avoided there. Um, Salem-Kaiser, things seem to be getting worse and worse with their budget situation and with Mm. their relationship with their unions, both the classified and uh, licensed unions there. Um, But at the same time, because Portland's lasted so much longer than anyone anticipated and it got as tense as it did, that is one other layer where Salem-Kaiser's like, okay, we have a much deeper idea of like the potential negative impacts of the strike too. So Mm -hmm. I don't know which one's going to kind of win in the end. I think there is some Mm -hmm. encouragement that like, well, if Portland can do it and they reach this contract, we might need to strike too. Um, And then there's a side of them that might say, wow, it got so messy and so um, tumultuous. If we can avoid it, I think they will. But yeah, I think yeah, that was the case with every strike is everyone wants to avoid it until they can't. So I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, we talked a little bit about, you know, like how the students came out post-strike and I'm Wondering about their families in particular, because mm-hmm. there seemed to be a lot of public support for the teacher strike from students' families. You know, some, some of them were joining the picket lines. Where are they sitting with it now that it's all over? Because I, I heard that there was some complaints about, you know, the uh, makeup days that ha- have to be added over the winter break. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, there was absolutely no movement on class sizes seems to uh, have also really ticked some parents off. Like, what are you hearing? Yeah, I think the the interesting thing with the class size in particular is that one of the main hangups at the end was around those class size committees. There are these new committees that were added through this contract. Um, and the main question was how involved parents should be. And you had lots of parents saying, well, we want to be involved. But then you also had a lot of people being like, but this isn't the reason to keep striking. Like, let's have this conversation, but like, let's not keep striking over this. Um, So I think there was a lot of varying degrees of feelings and support on those. I do think there was a a tonal shift toward the end of the strike. You started having families who had been really supportive start Mm. to get frustrated, especially with the messaging. Um, They kept hearing very different narratives from each side about what the holdup was and what the disagreements were. And I think people got really annoyed with that. People got really frustrated with that. And I heard that from family members. uh, But I also heard that from some union members, too. Uh, I saw one email from a teacher saying that uh, you know, she couldn't afford to keep striking, so she was going to go back to work even if the, the strike yeah. had ended by a certain date. And thankfully, the the timeline worked out so that, to my knowledge, that didn't have to happen for that individual. But mm-hmm. um, I do think there were a lot of people who were like, this lasted way longer than we thought. Pretty much everyone was upset about having to go back for the first week of winter break. And there were some people who were really upset about some of the individual things in in the contract. I think for the most part, though, everyone is is still processing it. They're glad the strike is over. They're glad students are back. Their their primary concern is making sure kids get caught up. And I, I think they feel the people who were involved 
throughout and had been pretty vocal supporters of PAT. I I do think everything I've heard from them has been very much like because we were consistent, because we we stuck together, because we did this strike, we were able to get to this point. And I think in that regard, they they're still supportive and proud that the strike happened in that way. Right. Especially since there's been so many positive outcomes from it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like it was a total wash or something, um, right. you know. Well, last question. Uh, what have you heard from the rats? Like, what do they think about the contract? Has there been any, uh, has there been an official statement? You know, they haven't returned my calls. I know. Yeah, I would imagine <laughs> they'd be upset because they're essentially getting, you know. They're getting, they're getting booted out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying they should be in the classroom, but I had very sweet pet rats when I was little. <laughs> I hear this. I hear they're really, they're like really uh, nice pets. Uh, my mom's a retired teacher. She had some, a, a fair amount of times students would come in with pets and be like, Miss Pate, do you want these two hamsters? I can't have them anymore. So we ended up with a handful of pets just out of the goodness of my mother's heart. But the the rats that we had, they were two of the sweetest uh, pets that we had. So what I'm hearing is... Uh, uh, you know, Guadalupe Guerrero, once you you gather all these rats, Natalie, Pate, and their mom, uh, they're just waiting. They're just Don't waiting. Don't you dare. Don't you dare, Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Natalie, for hanging out with me, for also just uh, for your work. I know that was exhausting. I hope you get some time off. Thanks again for all the work you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And now for some upcoming events. This weekend, you can cross more off your holiday shopping list at Naya's Native Made Winter Marketplace, which is happening at the Lloyd Center from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Also, there are still tickets available for The Moth in Portland. If you're not familiar with The Moth podcast or its shows, they're a popular and much-loved storytelling event that takes place all over the country, and it's coming to the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall on December 12th. And The Numbers and Pam Cut are kicking off a quarterly series this weekend, highlighting the perspectives of Portland's communities of color through themed nights at the Tomorrow Theater on Southeast Division. And it's all starting with a black horror movie night screening the feature The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. Also this Sunday, the Rose Quarter Guitar Show is happening at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum. 15 bucks gets you in the door. It starts at 10 a.m. You can buy, sell, trade guitars and guitar accessories all day or just look around. We'll link to all events I mentioned in our show notes. And for even more events and local news, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll also throw a link to that in the show notes. Well, that's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. (laughs) 